0: If it's okay with you, I would just uh, like to start us by uh, having a time of corporate prayer together. Would you go ahead and bow your heads with me? Father, as we begin to speak of your word tonight, uh, God, I recognize that uh, we are all at very different places, and I pray that your spirit would speak to each of us. God, that we would not settle for just an ordinary life, but God, that we would desire to be seen as great in your eyes. Speak, O God, for your child is listening. Amen. Now, it's hard for us to imagine a world without America. It's hard for us to think of a world that was before the land of the free and the home of the brave and all of that. But way, way, way long ago, before America ever was thought of, the world was ruled by Rome. Remember this? Rome was this representative republic that transitioned into an empire, that transitioned into a dictatorship. And the ultimate dictator became known as the emperor of Rome, so much so that his name, Julius Caesar right, was the first Roman emperor, his name became the calling card of the entire Roman power system, simply known as the Caesar. The Caesar had all authority. The Caesar, his word was all powerful. The Caesar, his word was final. His word was literally everything. And to the Roman people, Caesar was God. Caesar was God made flesh to them. And, and under Julius's rule, under Julius's rule, the Roman Empire expanded to what was known then as the entire known world. His rule was absolute. His, his power was unlimited. His wealth was unmatched. His authority was unquestioned. And yet, while Julius Caesar ruled Rome, there was this baby. There was this baby born... in in a remote outskirt region of the Roman Empire called Judea in a little nondescript town called Bethlehem to a young Jewish single mother whose family was poor and had very little prospects of anything great in this world. But the crazy fact is, is that the fame and the renown of this little Jewish baby would eventually eclipse not only the fame and renown of a man named Julius Caesar, but would eclipse the fame and renown of all of the Roman Caesars. And, and his fame and his influence in the world would grow to be so great that his name is spoken to this very day when most of the Caesars of Rome, when their names have slipped into history. His kingdom, this baby's kingdom, would grow in its influence and grow in its influence and grow in its influence, so much so that long after, long after the influence of Rome faded into history, his kingdom lives on. Lives on and celebrated by literally billions of people around the world. And and this baby stood against the injustices of this empire and he stood against the hypocrisy of what religion had become in his day. And this baby taught us to love our neighbors. And he taught us not only to love our neighbors, but he taught us to love our enemies as well. And he, and, he, and he had this radical idea that he, expo, uh, he exposed. He espoused this idea that we would literally be a people who would turn the other cheek, that we would forgive readily. And not just forgive those that are easy to forgive, not only forgive those that we love, but to forgive everyone, to forgive even our enemies. Eventually, This baby would grow to be hated by the religious and political leaders of his day. He would be betrayed by one of his closest and dearest friends. He was condemned by the very same political and religious structure. He was then crucified by the uh, the emperor of Rome. But one day, get this, one day, this baby would be revered around the world. Amen? Amen? Y'all with me? And and it wasn't long after the crucifixion of Christ that this group of of Jesus followers would begin to gather on the first day of the week. And they would celebrate, and they would remember Jesus, and they would begin to sing songs that they later called hymns. And these hymns, and in these hymns, they would pour out their heart, their soul, their their life. They would lift up their voices to, to the Jesus that Rome had crucified. And then they would begin to, to often retell his stories, and they would remind each other of the things that they learned by watching the life of Jesus and listening to his words. And then some of his earliest followers began to write some of the words of Jesus Jesus down, and they would begin to share these words with one another, and they would gather around, and they would read these words and study these words as if these words were symbolic to life, itself for them and and something unique happened when these people would gather Uh, they would they would commit themselves to living a godly life a pure life an honorable life and and they would encourage each other to stand in the face of incredible adversity they would encourage each other to stand in the face of incredible temptation that would come their way and they would challenge each other to be bold with their faith and yet listen and yet humble with their lives. And then they would encourage each other to pass this on to their children, to teach their children, to hold their families together in a way that was utterly unique in the world of that time. And in these these gatherings, Christians, um, there there was something unique that was going on among them because, because in a singular gathering, there was something that would happen that the world had almost never seen before. Slaves would worship with their masters. Freed people, freed people would, would, would come together with servants and they would worship. Women and men would meet together and they would study God's word together. Um, there, there, were, there were Greeks and there were Romans and there were Jews and there were Gentiles and there were Africans. There were educated and non-educated. There were rich and there were poor and they would all gather together. And they had this sweet spirit of unity about them. They had this spirit of, of oneness, of a common love, and a common being, a common community. And, and all of these people who would gather together in the way of Jesus, they believed that God was spirit, not these stone idols that they had become used to, not uh, these mythical angry gods of the Greeks. And most certainly, they did not believe that Caesar was God made flesh? No, 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 no. They believed something utterly different than that. They believed that God was spirit and that Jesus became God made flesh. They believed that by looking at Jesus, they could have a relationship with God the Father. By looking at Jesus, they could learn how to act and become what God wanted them to act and how God wanted them to become in this world. And, and, and there was this spirit about them that, that thought that everything had changed in the God-man relationship. They they realized that man no longer had to live crippled in fear when it came to knowing God, but that they could literally know, love, and follow God because God wanted to be known, loved, and followed. And, and And they believed that God's spirit would lead them when they opened their hearts to him when they asked for his leadership they really believed that god would provide it for him for them and these followers of jesus these early christians listen friends they were betrayed by their friends and they eventually were condemned by the political and religious structures of their day and they were persecuted and put to death by the empire of rome but 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 their influence spread like a raging wildfire. And it changed the world. It changed the world. And I just have to ask this question. Honestly, I'm just wondering, how would they describe us one day? How, How would people coming beyond us after us one day look back and describe you and me because you realize we don't just go to church you realize this right we are the church and we are writing the ongoing story of god you you realize that god his story hasn't ended with them his story is among us right now and that we are telling the story of god and i just wonder honestly what are they going to say about us what are our children and grandchildren going to say about us i just wonder if there's anything great that they're going to write about us are they going to be able to tell and speak of the great god that we love are they going to be able to tell of the great movement of god that came from us i just wonder the story of his church that we're going to tell and i particularly wonder about our generation and about the American church, what it is really going to be like in the future. And so as we launch this brand new series called Great, I want to take you on a bit of a narrative that comes straight out of the Bible book of Acts. And, and I think it's an incredibly challenging, incredibly challenging, uh, um, because... The the reason I think it's so incredibly challenging is because it reminds us that there was once a version of Christianity that was so awe-inspiring, so incredibly great and powerful that people stopped and took notice. Do Do you realize that there was once a version of the Christian faith that was so moving that it became a movement unto itself. And, and even though it was so strange in this world, and even though it was so different in this world, and even though it was so opposed to the, the, the political structures of this world, the financial structures of this world, the power structures of this world, the sexual structures of this world, people were drawn to it. There was once a version of the Christian faith that was so real and so powerful that people's hearts were stirred. They weren't driven away from it. They were drawn to it. They were curious of it. and They wanted to know more about it. And countless people, countless people, eventually gave their heart and soul to the Jesus at the middle of the Christian faith. Now, this particular piece of narrative that we're about to jump into is, is a story that tracks some of the earliest followers of Jesus. And, and what's interesting is it happened just two months after, listen, just two months after his death and crucifixion and his resurrection, just two months after. This isn't two years later. This isn't 20 years later. This isn't 200 years later. This is immediately on the, on the tail of Jesus dying and rising from the dead. And and so if you have a book uh, or Bible or if you have a smartphone, I would love for you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 4. We're just going to walk through this together. I think this would serve you so well. So if you're new to this whole church thing or to this Bible thing, the book of Acts is simply an ancient manuscript that records the acts of the earliest followers of Jesus, the actions of Jesus' closest and earliest followers. It just tells their story. It just looks and says, Here's what happened. Here's what went on, and and, uh, and again, this was just shortly after the death of Jesus. And, and what's interesting is this isn't going to be like a Bible lesson. This passage isn't really like a Bible story as we normally think of Bible stories, and it's not really meant to teach us anything. It's simply uh, a, a, an incident that is recorded by the writer. The writer is looking at this and saying, "There's something that you need." to know about there's something that happened that, that was literally world changing. And so this book called Acts was written by a man named Luke and he was a doctor. He was a smart man and he started to hear, he started to hear things about this Jesus character. Uh, and, and he wanted to know more about it. He wanted to figure it out. And so we learn later that he begins to make this investigation. He, he, he unturns all the facts. He starts to interview all of these people. And he starts to, uh, to investigate the claims of people who had been around Jesus. He starts spending a whole bunch of time with them. He wanted to know if it was true. And so he researched it. And he went after this. And he began to record some of the events that took place. Because eventually, this doctor, this skeptic, becomes a believer. And he wants the world to know the ongoing story. Of God, And what's interesting is Luke begins traveling around the Mediterranean with a man named Paul. Some of you guys have heard this. And he's, he's watching Paul. And Paul's out there starting little churches. He's starting little church plants. And, he, and he's getting these things going. And what's interesting, he's planting these in all these Roman cities where it is completely anti-Christian. Everything against what Christians believe. And yet, we see that these little churches come to life. And they start to grow in the society that hates everything about God but people are turning their hearts toward Christ and, 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 and Luke begins to record this. And what's really interesting at this time, just a couple of months after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Luke begins to record that there are all kinds of people are saying that Jesus is being cited all over the region, that, that this one who they watch crucified were the the people who literally listen to this who put jesus to death or demanded the death of jesus who sat there and cheered on his death now these very same people are reporting that they're seeing jesus walking again breathing again talking again engaging the community around him and many of these people start to put their hope and their trust and Jesus and so Luke begins to tell this story, and he begins to tell the story of the disciples or the apostles as they became known. And what does the word "apostle" mean? Anybody know? It means the ones who are sent. It's very, very simple. These are the ones who, who when they met Christ, when they gave their life to Christ, their life was so radically turned around that they wanted more of God. And so they went out and told the story of Jesus. They went out and told the story, and they planted these churches, um, so literally they were being sent out to tell people about jesus so we can think of them as missionaries right right that's what we would think of them as it's the same type of thing and so these apostles became the spokespeople of this very new movement called the way this is very interesting as a matter of fact they were called those who followed in the way of jesus they weren't even called christians at first that title christian came much much later but at this point they're simply called followers of the way, and, and that brings us to the book of Acts, chapter four, and we're going to notice something here. Two guys that some of you who have studied the Bible, you might have heard these names before. You might be familiar with these two guys. But there's two guys, Peter and John, and they tried to go to the temple one day to pray. Now, remember, this is a common deal. Um, unlike you know where where we reside now, you usually come on the weekends to, to go to church or to an event or when the doors are particularly open. But back in this day, the temple was the center of everything. The temple held the marketplace. The temple was a great gathering community, right? And so the temple, by the way, was like 34 acres. It was huge. It had all these buildings, and, and it was 34 acres that were surrounded by this massive wall. The whole thing was huge. And inside of this wall, there was uh, there was like courtyards and pools and, and gathering areas. And then there were these massive steps that began to take you deeper into the temple. And it, it's an amazing thing. And so Peter and, and, and uh, John, they wanted to, to go and simply pray, to connect with God at the temple. And an amazing thing happens As Peter and John were making their way past the gates of the temple. Just when they get inside the gates, it records that there is this, this man. We, we learn later that he's about 40 years old and he is, he's disabled. And because he's disabled... He's a beggar. That's what they had to do to survive, right? And he had been there all of his life. Everybody knew. Everybody who was in and out of the temple every day knew this guy. He was there every day. This is what the guy did to survive. And so Peter and, and John, they come strolling in past the gates, and all of a sudden this guy kind of gets their attention. I don't know if this has ever happened to you in Detroit, but some guy comes up and says, hey, you got a few bucks? Anybody? Anybody? You know what I'm talking about? So that's what goes on. So they're coming into the gate, and this guy somehow connects with them. Somehow, you know, they stare him in the eye, and instead of just going by when this guy says, hey, do you got a donation for the needy? Do you have something you can give the needy? Very interesting. Instead of Peter and John just kind of going, yeah, yeah, later, don't got anything, they stop. And their eyes connect. And for a moment, their soul connects. And Peter looks at John and then looks at this guy, and says, just like some of y'all in the room, we're broke. We don't have anything we can give you. We have nothing. Except for one thing. Except for something that is way better than money. And then Peter, with everybody looking on, and the whole Temple Gate area, I mean, this is the center of city life. With all the action coming down, Peter literally calls out to God in the name of Jesus and ask God to heal this man. He asked God to heal, to Ask God to move and, and, and this gets a little bit crazy because Luke, uh, Luke is looking at all this. Dr. Luke is writing this down. He's like, I practice medicine. I'm about all of this and I've never heard anybody call on somebody else's name to bring healing. But Luke is writing this down. And Luke hears this and sees this, and he writes down that they called on the name of Jesus, and the man who could not walk, who had been lame from birth, suddenly can walk. Now, we don't know how it all went down. We don't know if some friends went over there and lifted him up. We don't know if he was like hanging on the wall trying to get up. We don't know if he had a chair to push himself up. We don't, we don't know anything. But all we know is they say, get up in the name of Jesus and walk. And so the guy finds himself standing up, and my guess is he's probably pretty wobbly at first, probably trying to orient himself and trying to figure out which way to go and how, all that. And Peter and James, or Peter and John, they do something crazy. They look at the guy and they go, Sweet. And they literally go, That's a whole heck of a lot better than giving you 10 bucks. Good day. We got to go. And, and they go into the church. Now, what's interesting is this guy, he's standing there wobbling. And we learned this in the story that he's like, hey, where are you going? I'm coming with you. And that makes perfect sense, right? Because if you have been laying down all of your life and you can't walk and somebody comes up to you and says, get up in the name of Jesus and walk, I'm thinking if you get up and walk, you're gonna walk wherever they are walking. And so they're moving their way up and all of a sudden these guys are going, "Ho, wait up a second. This guy's going, hold on, I'm coming with you. I'm just getting this down. Give me a second here, but I'm catching up. And so when people are seeing this, they start to freak out. No kidding, right? And they're going, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Isn't, isn't that, whoa, isn't that the same guy who has been sitting in that same spot for, this, for like 40 stinking years? Isn't that the guy we used to like make fun of when we were kids? Yeah. And so it says that people started gathering around and the crowd starts gathering around and they're asking questions like, hey, what, how did this happen? How did this go? Did they touch you in some way? Did they do like medicine? Or what was his name? I heard this name. The guy was speaking about this name. And what was all this about? How did this happen? How are you walking? And Peter and John, they, they, they take this moment, this opportunity that was given to them, and these crazy guys, in the middle of the Jewish temple, they start to preach about Jesus. And they start to speak the very name of Jesus. And the word is getting around that this Jesus name somehow healed this guy and people are putting this together because all over town people are talking about these jesus sightings that are going on and now right here in the very temple the jewish temple in the heart of everything the heart of the political and religious structure of that community his name is being spoken And as Peter gets more and more fired up about this, my guess is he's probably like me and he's getting louder and louder and louder about this and the crowd's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden we learn that the temple authorities come in to break up the party. The temple authorities come in and they're like, hey, hey, what's, and they start clearing the people out and they start pushing out. Who's doing what? And all of a sudden as they're clearing it out in the center of this crowd, they see the man who had been laying down for 40 years and they go, hey, who's going out? What's going on? Hey, Joe, is that who I think it is? Yeah, I think so. And they look at this man. And then they turn and they see Peter and John speaking of Jesus right then and right there. And so they arrest them. And they pull him back to the back room. And what's the irony of all this is this is the same room they pulled Jesus in just two months earlier. The same group of people did the arresting. The same group of people were in charge of this whole deal. And I want you to think about this for a moment. They're standing here with two of the central characters of the entire Jesus movement. And I want you to think for a second for what Peter and John are probably thinking to themselves. They're thinking, these are the folks that arrested our savior these are the folks who, who beat him and mocked him and spat on him and then turned him over to rome to be crucified they're probably thinking wouldn't it seem reasonable to you that we are not going to make it out of this alive that seems like a reasonable thought isn't it and so they're put in jail overnight, and the very next day, we learn that the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin was called in. This is like the big guns. These are like the top dogs. And we learned that Ananias, who was the chief priest, and then his son Caiaphas, who was the high priest, and all of their other sons were all involved. These were all, all, the, all the high priests, all the leaders. See, you understand that this religious structure had become just that, a religious structure ruled by a family for their own benefits. And so these are the very same people who just two months earlier dealt with this whole Jesus problem that was a threat to their security, was a threat to their position. And so now they're gathered in with with Peter and John and they get together and they're like, I thought we put an end to all this. Didn't we kill that Jesus guy? Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, we did, Dad. Yeah. And so they turn to Peter and John and they say something like this. They say, What's wrong with you guys? Why can't you just let this whole thing go? Why why can't you let this whole Jesus thing go? Why do you have to keep bringing it up? Uh, Why can't you let a dead man just be dead? And Peter says, because he's not. What do you mean he's not? Yeah, he's not. I want you to listen to this because this is Peter's response. This is jaw-dropping. This is gutsy. This is great. Listen, this is great. Peter says in verse 8, chapter 4, he says, Then Peter filled with what? Filled with what? the Holy Spirit of God said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called into account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and every single person in Israel, know this, Facebook it, tweet it, put it on Instagram. We don't care what anybody thinks because we're gonna tell you exactly what happened right here, right now. And he says this, this is crazy, talk to me. He says, He says, it is by the name of who? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he looks at him, he goes, yeah, you guys remember him. He was giving you all kinds of problems. He wasn't the problem. You were the problem because he says, you, what does he say? He says, you crucified him, but whom God raised from the dead. That is why this man stands before you healed today. And then he says something so insulting. He says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. As you're building this little community we call Israel, you rejected the stone that was supposed to build it on. He says, but now, but now he has become the capstone. Boom, over all of it. He says, you're not going to miss him next time. And this is what he says. And in the end, this little speech, if that wasn't offensive enough, he says something really offensive next. He's like, remember who he's talking to, the very people who could take their lives. It's fresh in their mind what they just did to Jesus. Listen to this. But he says to them, verse 12, he says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. How, what do you think about this? How narrow minded is this? How insulting is this? How one sided? How intolerant is this? In fact, I understand, listen, I get it. Um, there, there are some people in this room who are, are not Christians, and we're super, super glad you're here. And it's this kind of stuff that you say right there is why I'm not a Christian, because it's so narrow. How do you people think that you know it all, that you have the right way and everybody else is is wrong? What what right do you have to, to be that way? It's just so offensive. But let me tell you something, friends. Modern Christians, like some of us in this room, we did not make this up. Peter, in this very room, full of people who could potentially take his life, looks straight at them and says, you crucified Jesus. We all saw it, but we also saw something else. We saw him raised by God from the dead. We saw it, we witnessed it. We don't care what you say. We don't care what you think we were smoking. We don't care what you think what happened. All we know was the guy was dead and a whole bunch of us saw him alive. And you can call me narrow-minded, but I'm thinking when a guy raises from the dead, he's probably right. And he says to them, this is the only name that's going to save you. You show me somebody else who could do these tricks, then we'll talk. But as far as I know, this is the only name that's going to make anything different. And I get it. I get it. This is why a whole bunch of people, um, you know, think that Christianity is offensive. And this is why a whole bunch of people, maybe even in this room, don't believe. But I think we should cut Peter and John and some of the others a little slack. I really do because, listen, they saw their friend, their teacher, their rabbi, their pastor, falsely accused. They saw him arrested and beat to within inches of his life. They saw him spat upon and mocked and then ruthlessly turned over to the Romans to be executed. They saw him murdered in cold blood. And friends, but well, here's the deal. They saw him die. But then, they saw, and then they saw him buried, but then just a couple of days later, just a couple of days later, they had breakfast with him on the beach. And, and I'm telling you, if you have breakfast with a dead man on the beach, the dead man who said, I'm going to die, but I will be back. I'm thinking it's gonna change your perspective a little bit. Listen, Peter and John were among the closest followers who betrayed Jesus, who walked away from Jesus. When the tough got, or when it it started getting tough on them, listen, they got out of there. They ran. There was nobody going, whoo, that's my Jesus on the cross. They were hiding in fear. But when you do breakfast with a guy on the beach who was dead and now raised again, You're eating Cheerios. Would you like some bacon with that? It changes everything. It takes the fear out of you. It changes your perspective on what's really important in your life. It takes all of your priorities and rearranges them. It makes your heart new. And it takes the fear out of other people. It makes you care far less about what other people think about you. It changes you, friends. And this is what happens to them. These men say no other name, no other name given to men by which you can be saved. And so this Jewish ruling council, this Sanhedrin, they call it, they were like, do do, you not realize who we are? And they're like, yeah, yeah, you're silly is what you are. Because I know a guy who is dead and he is no longer dead. And I don't care what you say or what you do, it's not going to change my mind. And it's not going to change his mind or his mind or all these other people who saw him, die, who saw you crucify him. And they were like, but you don't realize our power. We can walk right down to the uh, to the governor of Rome and ask him to execute you and they were like do what you want do what you want you do what you got to do because you're not changing our mind and then listen to this verse 13 this is amazing this is amazing it says when they saw the what is the word help me out guys when they saw the courage of peter and john and they realized that they were unschooled ordinary men they were fishermen for crying out loud right? And these guys were like, these are not like really well-educated people. These aren't really like high performers, high dollar. These aren't like the Bill Gates of the world. These are common and ordinary in every single way. And it says, when they realized all this, they were what? They were what? They were astonished because of their courage, because of their words, because of their boldness. And they took note that these men had been with who? Who? Jesus but since they could not but, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them and everybody's going are you sure this is the guy yeah it's definitely the guy this is definitely the guy definitely the guy when they saw the man who was healed standing with them they could not say another Another word. And so here's what they do. This council, they send James or John and uh, Peter out of the room and all their little entourage. They send them out of the room, and they look at each other and say, what are we going to do? Because the people are on their side. The people all know the guy was lame and they think God has performed a miracle and they think that these two men are from God, that they represent God, that somehow God used them. And if we kill them, we're gonna lose all of our authority because the people will turn against us. And so they bring John and Peter back in and this is what they do. This is kind of crazy talk. They, They go, hey, we're telling you guys for the last time Knock it off about this whole Jesus stuff. Don't speak of his name anymore. Keep your mouth shut, and we'll let you live. So they send him away. You see the problem with this? You see the problem with this? Um, Because when you do breakfast on the beach with a man who was dead, and now he's alive, it's just kind of hard to keep quiet about that. It's just kind of hard to keep what is going on inside of you on the inside, isn't it? There's just something in you that's got to, like, tell the story. And so what's interesting is these guys, they, they don't go hide in fear. They don't, like, ooh, we made it out alive. Let's just be quiet now. Let's just, like, hide in our basement, watch TV. You know what they do? They do something crazy. They go back and they meet with the other Christians, the other followers of Jesus. They get together like some of us get together in our little homes and they get together and they start talking about what's going on and then then it says this. They had this, uh, this is very interesting because they had the the very first prayer gathering that's ever recorded for us. It's very interesting. The very first prayer gathering ever recorded And, and they pray a prayer that seems a little bit different Than our prayer. I don't know. It just seems a little bit different. Here's what it says, verse 24. It says, When they heard this, what did they hear? Who was they? It's the people they go back to and they start telling all the deal, and people are asking questions. So, John, did they hit you? Peter, what did they say to you? What did you say? You said that? You're the man. You know, and they're like talking about all this stuff. And so it says, When they heard this, it says, they gathered together and they raised their what? Their Voices together in prayer. And so they agree together and they start to pray to God. And then it says, Sovereign Lord, the one who is in charge, the one who is large, the one who is ruler over all. It says, Sovereign Lord. They said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, isn't this how we begin our prayers? Nope. We say, Dear God, Thank you for making a nice day. How small. Not very great. Our prayers, sometimes they don't seem very big, do they? But they said, oh, sovereign God, oh, creator of the universe, you made everything. You made the earth and the sea and everything that they contained. You are the creator. You are the God of the universe. And they just come out of the box, kind of firing it out, don't they? Verse 25, then they say this. They say, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And they literally begin to quote what was written over a thousand years earlier. This is crazy. They go back and they begin to quote some of David's prayers, David's writing, because they understood that David spoke of a coming Messiah. And sometimes people thought David was the Messiah. David's saying, I'm not the Messiah. There's one who's coming after me who is. He's going to put it all back together again. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. And so they begin to quote because they had begun to put it together because when you do breakfast on the beach with a man who was buried, it changes everything. And so they say this, And why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against the anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they recognize that Jesus was the anointed one of God that David spoke about and all the prophets proclaimed. And then they say this, they pray. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. And they're like, God, we know that this is a little surprising to us, but it's not at all surprising to you. So we're not worried about anything. We're not afraid of anything at this point, but we do have a little request. God, we do need you to do something for us. And verse 29 is perhaps one of the most powerful verses of Scripture for Christians to understand. If you're a Christian in this room, this this is how they prayed. Here it is, verse 29. This is their prayer. You ready for this? Now protect us and watch over us and keep us and cause our portfolios to grow and our waistlines to shrink and our kids to get scholarships and for me to get a brand new car. And a date and a new outfit, and a new MacBook Pro, and a new flat-screen television, and I would like granite countertops. (laughs) Friends, we pray little prayers. And so maybe that's why so little great happens in our life. We pray small things. And so maybe that's why small things happen in our life. We pray not great, but small. And God longs to do something great. He longs to do something amazing in our souls and in our lives, with our lives. But we're stuck on small prayers. But these guys weren't. Here's what it actually says. You ready for verse 29? This is amazing. Here's their prayer. Remember that their Savior had just been killed, brutally crucified. Remember that their people are now starting to be arrested, their lives are being threatened. And this is how they pray. Now, Lord, consider their threats. We know the threats against us. Now, why don't you, God, to consider their threats and enable, even in spite of all their threats, enable your servants to speak your word with what? Come on. Great boldness. God, yeah, we know that they're threatening to kill us, but God, help us anyways to speak with what? Yet we know they're coming against our families and this might cost us everything and we might lose everything and this might even end our lives. But God, give us great what? Boldness. And we say to this, we go, well, they had the whole boldness thing down. That's what got, got them arrested in the first place. If they would just learn to be quiet, they'd be fine. If they would learn how to get along just to get along, they would be okay. Maybe we should learn how to lower the key just a little bit. And they were like, no way. Because when you do breakfast on the beach with a man who you saw killed and crucified and buried and then raised from the dead, it changes everything. It changes everything. And friends, let me tell you something. Andy Stanley says it like this. Andy's one of my favorite, and so much of uh, his wisdom has spoken into my life. He, He says it this way, that there was once a version of Christianity that once inspired people like you and me to pray heroic prayers. And I would say it like this to you, that there was a version of the Christian faith that was once so real and so bold and so great that because of the people who believed this, That the whole world came to know about the grace of God, the goodness of God, the the bigness of God, the greatness of God. The whole world was changed. There was once a version of the Christian faith that was so awe-inspiring that the light of Christ penetrated a dark world that wanted nothing, nothing, nothing to do with him. That there was once a great... Uh, such, a, such a version of the Christian faith that was so great and so powerful that it inspired people who literally crucified, crucified Jesus to put their hope and trust and faith and fellowship and obedience in him. And let me tell you one more thing. There was once a version of the Christian faith that was so great that it brought the empire of Rome to a close. And let me tell you in just a few words where I think this kind of great faith comes from. And this is so simple that um, you may go, man, Jay, you need to study more. Um, This is so simple that you're gonna think it's like anticlimactic, that you're gonna think there has to be something more, but I don't really think so. When I look at this kind of great faith, that literally changed the world. This kind of, this kind of power that, that changes the individual, this kind of power that can change a marriage, that can change a family, that can change a friendship, that can change this kind of power that can change an addiction. When I read about this, it seems to be rooted in one thing. It seems to be driven by one thing And what Jesus says to us. He, you ready for this? This is what Jesus says to us. He says, what drove the apostles and what drove peter and john and what eventually drove this doctor named luke to put their hope and their trust to give their entire lives people this is what drove the people of god to change the world he says it like this this is what he says he says i'll tell you where it's at this is where it begins he says love the lord your god it's that simple you love god with all, of your what? with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind. And then he says, this is the greatest of all the commandments. You get this whole love thing down. It will change your world. It will change your faith. When you learn to love God more than you love the applause of men... When you learn to love God more than you love your wallet, your career, your prestige, your position. When you learn to love God more than you love your granite countertops. When you learn to love God more than you even love your family. And I love my family. But when you learn to love God like that, there will be the kind of faith in you that will be so great that the onlooking world We'll lean in a little closer and they'll say I want some of that John gets into the action a little bit later he starts to talk about love in his book called First John and he begins to remember the price Christ paid for us and he begins to remind us that that, that that God loved us so much that he gave his one and only son and that Jesus loved us enough to pay the price for our forgiveness of sin, that, that he was willing to stand in our place. And I don't know about you, but I have a whole bunch of sin. I might be the only one in the room. I guess it's probably not though. But he loved us so much that he looks at our sin and he says, I am willing to pay the penalty of death for that so that you do not have to die. And then John says these words to us, and we shouldn't forget them. He says, we love because God first loved us. And friends, when we remember, when we remember the great love that God poured out for us, the only reasonable response is to love him most above anything, above anything, above everything. It is to love him first and to love him most. This is where greatness in the eyes of God begins. Love him. I don't know what that's going to look like for you. But my guess is that you know love when you feel it. And you know love when you see it. And you know love when you experience it. Love him. Love him. Jesus, um, we, uh, Heavenly Father, we we bow uh, before you. And we confess that we have loved a whole bunch of things other than you. We have loved a whole bunch of things ahead of you in and, 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 and greater ways than we have loved you. And God, we are sorry for this. At least I am sorry for this. But God, your call was for us to first love you with all of our hearts, all of our souls and all of our mind and all of our strength, every part of who we are. God, would you help us in this room right now just to get a picture of your great mercy and grace for us? For some of us in this room, God, we need to fall in love with you for the first time. God, I don't know where folks are, but God, right now, would you speak to their hearts? For some in this room, God, maybe they need to fall in love with you again. They have been so distracted. We've been so distracted. So many things get in the way. God, forgive us. Forgive us, God. We want to love you most. In Jesus' strong name, together we say Um, Man, thank you for joining me on the first part of this series. We're going to go a little further with this, this idea of what does it mean to be great in God's eyes. Uh, Maybe tonight you're here and there's something going on in your soul. Maybe, maybe something has, something has risen in your life and you don't like it there because it's on top and maybe something needs to be rearranged. Maybe you just need to spend some time praying with somebody. Uh, Maybe there's an issue going on. I don't know. We don't want to lecture you or beat you down, but up to my left, to your right, I would invite you to come and to pray with somebody if you feel that that would serve you well. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Good night.